0: Hello world. Welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, March 7th, 2019. The split is going to split edition. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Uh, This week, we're going to talk British politics and the possibility of fracture in one or both of the major parties following the departure of 11 MPs from the ranks of Labour and the Conservatives to set up an independent grouping in Parliament. Uh, To help me do that, I have a couple of colleagues uh, who are experts in politics and faction and not just from their time served in our political science department uh, meetings. Tim Horton, who is a reader and a student of European party politics. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And David Bailey, a senior lecturer who researches and writes about left-wing parties and movements. Hello, David. How are you doing? Uh, I'm fine. Thanks very much. And uh, you're both returning to the podcast. Uh, I think uh, you both appeared on our Brexit special, or was was that just you, David? And we've had you, Tim, before to talk about matters European. So uh, welcome back, friends of the pod. Uh, Always good to, to see you. So to set the table... Uh, for our discussion, for the benefit of listeners who you know may have had some of the detail of this drowned out by the the drumbeat of Brexit or, or other things, uh, let, let's uh, state what we're talking about here. On February the 18th, which you know in the, in, in these days of compressed political timetables feels like about six months ago. But on February the 18th, seven Labour members of Parliament announced that they were resigning from the party and would henceforth convene in Parliament as the independent group. Uh, They cited several reasons, but prominent among them were the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's inadequate response, as they saw it, to complaints of anti-Semitic statements and harassment by some party members and activists, Uh, failure to clearly oppose Brexit, uh, hard left, again, as they would see it, policy views, on the part of uh, Mr. Corbyn, and general cultivation of an atmosphere of intolerance in the party. They were soon joined by one more Labour MP, and then three Conservative MPs, displeased by the influence of hard-right Brexiteers in their own party. Uh, They've not yet formed a new party, but they seem set to do so before long, uh, with a view to running against their former parties in the next general election, whenever that may be. Uh, So the MPs in question are, for the record, because, you know, they've they've tried their best to make a splash, let's give some credit here. They are Chaka Ramana, uh, Luciana Berger, Mike Gapes, Chris Leslie, Angela Smith, Anne Coffey, Gavin Shooker, Joan Ryan, Anna Subri, Heidi Allen, and Sarah Wollaston. Uh, Notwithstanding their relatively small number, their move has destabilized things mightily at an already unstable time in British politics. The Conservative MP's departure trimmed Prime Minister Theresa May's non-existent governing majority uh, still further. I guess into the bone rather than close to the bone if, uh, if it already doesn't exist. Meanwhile the threat of a p- possible larger breakaway of anti-Corbyn Labour MPs energised the more centrist wing of the Labour Party into more assertive action with Deputy Leader Tom Watson, a long time antagonist of Corbynites, demanding that the leadership take urgent steps to accommodate rival factions or face electoral disaster. Uh, meanwhile the Labour left, now hegemonically powerful, uh, in control the party, uh, is debating within itself how best to respond, with Corbyn himself appearing reluctant to give ground, uh, while his powerful ally, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, appears more inclined uh, to sue for peace to save the prospect of a future Labour government. And as you might expect, there was much bloodletting online, uh, with partisans of both factions characterizing each other less than positively. Okay, so that's that's the situation in which we, we currently are. Um, I've invited the two of you, and thank you very much for accepting that invitation uh, because I think we'll probably get uh, some difference and divergence of interpretation from you. Tim, let's start with you. As a man of the moderate centre-left, and therefore perhaps if anyone is supposed to be the target sympathetic demographic for these uh, departing members of the major parties, uh, you you would be it. Um, what are the arguments for doing what these MPs have done? What's this, what's this intended to be about?
1: Well, I think the first thing that is worth emphasising is just how important Brexit has been in terms of reshaping British party politics. It is the big issue of our time. It is also Britain's relationship with the EU has been one which has divided main political parties for a long period of time. And on this major issue that faces the country, there is a, a, a clear frustration amongst the independent group that Jeremy Corbyn essentially, I guess they would say he's almost been on the wrong side of history. He hasn't, although he was nominally in, uh, on the Remain side during the campaign, he didn't actively, uh, vigorously campaign to keep Britain in the in the EU. And so... One of the major driving forces behind it is to say on this major issue, essentially, you know, we need to to carve out some some territory. So it's partly driven by that. The second reason behind it is, you know, the Labour Party for a long time was led from the right of the party, um, the Blairites, um, Brown to lesser extent. People like Jeremy Corbyn were very marginal figures and... Those kind of individuals felt essentially that this was the way of pushing progressive politics. For someone like Corbyn to become the leader, taking the party back significantly to the left. So there's a lot of these discontented Labour politicians who kind of feel that not only are their interests not being well represented, but the Labour Party is being pulled significantly to to the left, which is neither good Ideologically for them, but also they would see it that, um, in terms of electorally, it's a very damaging and dangerous road to go down. And I think beyond that, there's also something about the kind of underlying tensions in the, in the, in the Labour Party in particular kind of groupings. So there's always been a group within the Labour Party on the hard left who are quite. Uh, uncompromising, um, they're the kind of people who are not easy to necessarily deal with, and it's seen that these people are beginning to get the upper hand. Mm, stir into the mix a, a lot of the accusations over over anti semitism, um, and in a if you like Corbyn's kind of reaction to it, and the view is either Jeremy Corbyn is supportive of. What has been done by people um, using these kind of anti-Semitic attacks, or he's shown himself to be a weak leader. Either of those two don't necessarily mean that you want to necessarily remain in the in in the party um, run by by Corbyn. So, I think that's the broader the, the reasons why there's been movement towards a new party. But it's perhaps also worth putting within even a broader context which is that political parties have been losing, uh, or the linkage between political parties and the citizens over which they govern has been fraying in many established democracies over, uh, uh, over recent years. And if you like the existing political parties are not seen to be the best vehicles so one argument is let's try to create a new political party which would be a better vehicle whether it is a better vehicle or not is of course something that we can debate and discuss Um, but I think that that broader sense of disillusionment and disappointment with the long established political parties on the big issue of the day Brexit but but more broadly the challenges the country faces is, is, is the context in which these developments have taken place.
0: Right. Um, David, let, let's turn to you. You're a student of parties, more specifically left-wing parties. Certainly some people within the Labour Party will be, are uh, crying treachery at those who have uh, resigned the whip and gone off to start this, uh, this this new faction because you know they, they joined the Labour Party. Uh, they ran as candidates. They were elected on that basis. The uh, the party's policy and leadership therefore ought to bind them as everybody else, but they've decided that they're above all that and they're going to flounce out and do their own thing now. Um, do you think that those sorts of charges are justified, justifiable, or, or is this just all in the game of, of, of politics? Well, in a sense, it's all in the game, I suppose, because
2: it seems to me that the, the obvious source of the rift is a pretty clear ideological division within the Labour Party and an ideological division between a majority grouping within the parliamentary party who still are, roughly speaking within the kind of new Labour mould of what the vision of a left-leaning social democratic party is and what it should do and they're obviously now confronting a much, a much more popular leader that doesn't represent the majority grouping but has much greater popularity uh, within the party more broadly and then within the kind of supporter base also more broadly so so, in that sense, it's in the game because there's a there's an ideological reason to obviously try to challenge the leadership to throw as much mud as they possibly can at that leadership, and some of the strategies that they that have been used have been more successful than others. Brexit was obviously the first major one that was used to to try to say you know the handling of Brexit and the Brexit referendum is done really terribly, and therefore we need a new leader because the leader can't really bring the party and the country around to the point of view that the Labour Party stands for. That was sort of sort of successful, but in terms of getting a groundswell within the parliamentary party, but not successful in terms of obviously winning the second uh, leadership election. And then so then obviously what what's happened now is that the anti-Semitism row has stuck much more firmly to Corbyn's to the Corbyn leadership. Um, I think probably what most of what Tim said I agree with I'm not sure that I agree with the point that the hard left are kind of obstinate and difficult to work with and so on I think probably if there's an ideological division it's difficult for them to work with each other so the the main the, the kind of right of the parliamentary party which represent the right of the Labour Party at the moment have themselves been pretty obstinate and difficult to work with for the Corbyn leadership I think I mean again we go to go back to the immediate post-referendum context, obviously um, one of the people that now have split was, was Anne Coffey, who was one of the people who actually put the initial motion, uh, motion of no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn. So there's been a concerted effort consistently to try to oppose his leadership, which I think sort of shows that kind of obstinacy on both sides. So in that sense, it's part of the game. There's an, ideolo- there's an, there's an, there's an there's, There are clear ideological divisions and distinctions between the different views of the different people within the... Labour Party that we're talking about. And probably politics is about the attempt to try to advance your ideological vision. So in that sense, it's sort of fair game, I suppose. But I guess what what you've already alluded to, I also agree with. I mean, you can't stand on a position which says, you know, the leadership isn't effective at organising a democratic party and ensuring that we all kind of have a fair say and so on. And then at the same time, flatly refuse to to stand in a by-election to to kind of test whether they actually represent the true opinion of the public, right. which is or kind of their stance. Or whether you were just like
0: the the Labour candidate, and your constituents they like, wanted to vote for that, and now you're not that anymore. Uh, so have have you uh, sold sold them short? I mean, I can you know I can think of this two different ways, and they both kind of make sense to me. Like one is like political parties exist for a reason, which is to you know achieve. Programs in a way that just electing all the different individual MPs to go and freelance it uh, couldn't accomplish. So, you know, you you all join up because you broadly share a political vision, you then agree amongst yourselves making compromises along the way, what the policy of the party is going to be, you secure a majority, you then put that program that you have compromised within the party to agree upon into practice as policy. And so things are accomplished that otherwise would not be accomplished if you just all constantly voted your conscience on every single issue. So it, it makes absolute sense that to get anything done programmatically, you need people within political parties to suck it up quite frequently and having expressed their views within intra-party debates, remain within the party and then go along with whatever the majority view is uh, uh, in terms of parliamentary behavior. So from that you know point of view uh you could say these people look like they they're not playing the game because you know Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, all these people throughout the 1990s when the Labour Party was doing a whole bunch of stuff that they probably thought wasn't great remained within the Labour Party uh did not break away and form some left-wing faction to uh, to to suck up votes and and potentially sabotage the party more broadly uh so you know is this just a case of uh the right of the Labour Party being unwilling to exist as a minority force in the way that the left was. On the other hand, when we look back at that period in the 1990s when Tony Blair was fortunate enough to have majorities that were, you know, big enough uh, that no one could dream of securing them in, in the current conditions of British electoral politics. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was basically doing whatever the hell he wanted to, voting against Labour Party policy in Parliament all the time, giving speeches about the, the evils of, of of government policy and how the Labour Party ought to be different. And Tony Blair's approach to it was to say, well, you know, Jeremy's going to be Jeremy. And, you know, I respect diversity within the party, because he had the latitude to, to, to do that. And, you know, Armies of Blairite online flamethrowers didn't come and make Jeremy Corbyn uh, Corbyn's life hell uh, for his divergence from the party line. So some mixture of circumstances and temperaments means that it's quite it's quite a different uh, a different situation that 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 those people who've left the party now are in compared to the relatively breezy and enjoyable version of being an insider dissident in Labour that, that existed before. Um, like, Which of those narratives does one have more, more sympathy with? Because I guess it comes down to the question, like, at what point do both the, the importance of the issues on which you disagree with the leadership rise to the level where you just cannot tolerate Keeping your own counsel on them, so you 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 know if if, if your party starts endorsing uh, you know genocide or something, obviously most people, however strongly they believe in programmatic politics and party loyalty, would say individuals have the right to leave so it are the issues at what point prior to that do issues become important enough that that you're going to uh, that, that you're going to um, to move on um, and you know how do you weigh the electoral consequences of that like are you going to achieve something positive by doing it or are you just going to sabotage both factions on your side of the ideological spectrum and let the uh, let let the other side uh, in what do you guys think about that is this is this a legitimate move or uh, is it a refusal to play the game of party politics in a
1: responsible way well, I think it's worth thinking here about about the primary issue that is facing the country. And Brexit is such a significant issue. As I said before, it's one of these where there's been a significant division within the two major parties for a long period of time. And we go back to key votes. We go back to the vote that took us into the European economic community. A significant proportion of MPs at that time um, went against their whip. And so in some senses, it's not that surprising if an issue is considered to be so significant as Brexit that politicians will put, as they would say, country before party, whereas there are other kinds of issues. So, for example, if we talk about socioeconomic policy, that tends to be more of a kind of continuum, Mm -hmm. less of a less of a more of a kind of binary black or white. We're in the EU. We're out of the EU. I know there are all sorts of variations at the moment about what the Brexit could be, but it's much more of an in and out discussion. So that become that's a very different framing to one on a broad range of socioeconomic issues where you know the labor party the if you got all of the labor politicians together they wouldn't agree on everything to do with socioeconomic policy, but they would they would they would find some happy kind of medium somewhere that they would all be willing to um, um, coalesce or they most of them would be willing to coalesce around so I think where it becomes i mean legitimate is a kind of big Dangerous word to use, right? But mm-hmm. it becomes, I think, understandable that you break away if the issue is such a significant issue that it is going to greatly affect the country. And whether we're inside the EU or not is is a, such a big kind of issue. So that makes some sense. Whether it's going to be successful or not, then that becomes, you know, if you're thinking about whether what what are the goals here. I mean. On the one hand, you could say so this the independent group could claim after a week, some success in terms of um, the Labour Party seeming to move in terms of its its position on, on a second referendum. But one could make a stronger argument to say that's driven perhaps less by the independent group and more by Um, general developments within the country and the fact that we are approaching this Brexit deadline. And is this going to make much of an impact in the longer term? I mean, the problem is that the electoral system that we have in this country is that if you are going to break away, you've got to have a really big, significant breakaway. So seven MPs, so what? Even if you're joined by three more and another one. To really make a difference, um, we would need to see at least you know 30-odd, shifting to the new grouping then it would be the third largest in parliament and it would actually have some formal position in parliament it would be much more of a focal point i i think that currently as currently constituted it's not going to have that much long-term impact to be honest with you but time will tell
0: yeah because i mean it i suppose it partly depends a little bit on, on on what happens next in that like if There are two schools of thought about party membership, right? Like one would be that, you know, you need to make it absolutely clear to everybody in the party that you're in that, you know, it's uh, my party right or wrong, that you're deeply committed to it institutionally. And therefore, when you articulate rival positions within intra-party debates, everyone knows you're coming from a place of fundamental commitment to the team. And therefore, you're more likely to be um, to be taken as a good faith actor and and, uh, listened to. On the other hand, you could argue that what's been illustrated here by the fact that only a few days after these MPs broke away, the Labour Party uh, moved on one of the most important issues, Brexit, in a way they had clearly been disinclined to do before. Jeremy Corbyn said, with you know a few asterisks and caveats, that Labour would back a second referendum, and that seemed to be a kind of in case of emergency break glass announcement that he had been trying to avoid making but was making now because of fear that this could spiral into a bigger exiting of more centrist labor uh, labor MPs so you could say that these people who departed accomplished something in terms of moving labor party policy by bringing onto the table the possibility of people leaving the party that wasn't going to be accomplished if everybody was declaring unconditionally that come what may they were going to stay within it because if that was the assumption Jeremy Corbyn was very clearly going to just pocket that promise and then, and then, then continue ambiguously. So, David, like, when people are having these kind of intra-party fights, like, clearly there is some kind of calculus at work about whether you can uh, achieve more by unconditional loyalty to the party or movement or whether you need the leverage of potentially splintering away in order to get people to really take you seriously if you're in a minority um <clears throat> well
2: sort yeah sort
0: of but i mean the way i suppose the i
2: suppose i suppose what i'm thinking is that the discussion then is very much focused on what's going on within parliament and and one of the questions for us in terms of considering the legitimacy or otherwise of parliamentary politicians i suppose is from which angle do we come into it? So you're asking the question: Should were, was it legitimate of the right wing of the Labour Party politicians to split off to try to put pressure onto the main the rest of the Labour Party, which they seem to have done, and whether that's legitimate or not? And I suppose my sort of I guess my initial kind of thought would be there, there isn 't much legitimacy or questions of sort of should they or shouldn 't they have done it in the first place that what the, what the parliamentary politicians are doing is a calculating act to try to achieve power in what, whichever way that they can do with a kind of ideological drive underneath that, but also obviously once they get into the game, they you know, become much more kind of power focused so the kind of legitimacy questions for me would be around how does this going kind to of affect the relationship between the citizens and the electorate and the Parliamentary groupings that exist within Parliament, and so I think probably it, it's, it's likely to exacerbate the problem which Tim already alluded to, which is that this is that uh, this is kind of driven by a weakening of the relationship between voters and parties. That there's a kind of sense of declining trust between voters and parties, and if now uh, a body of politicians moves between. From one one party manifesto to a kind of independent group, which doesn't seem particularly clear in kind of its in terms of its ideological position, and seems to be largely driven by sort of uh, career-related ambitions, plus a kind of disagreement over the policy of the party which they nevertheless stood for in terms of the manifesto, then that seems to me to be likely to to further weaken that kind of citizen party relationship because people are going to think well it doesn't really the, the person cam, campaigned got elected convinced me they were committed to this manifesto now has clearly changed their mind but won't submit themselves to another electoral test mm. and so yet again it appears that basically whatever you vote for the politicians will kind of get on and do what they like so in terms of this sort of legitimacy question should they or shouldn't they have done it i think the question is should be taken from the angle of how do voters how how what do, what should voters think about what what they did and what they didn 't do and I think from the perspective of the voter, in my view, if I voted for the uh, for that representative i 'd be pretty angry if they had convinced me that 's what they stood for, and then they changed course uh, not even halfway into the parliament but then didn 't and then flatly refused with no real justification we, what, I can't actually see what the justification for not going to a by-election was. Well, I mean, the, I
0: mean, there is a political justification, which is that they need time to organize themselves in such a way as to stand a chance defending themselves in a general election. Um, but yeah, obviously, like, like yeah. there the, are the, 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 the political defenses, and then there are, um, you know, facially plausible <laughs> moral defenses. Yes. And, you know, clearly whatever version of that they come up with will be reverse-engineered from the simple Uh fact that to stay in this seat, to have any chance of staying in this seat, they need to buy time. Which is ironic, I guess, because it's not like they had no time to plan this, you might have thought. I just, yeah, I I think it's
2: really, I mean, it just seems very ugly the way that they've done it. They've kind of, they've they've taken a number of lines of attack to try to discredit the Corbyn leadership, and then they've found one that stuck because it, uh, it's around accusations of racism and anti-Semitism, and it's much more difficult to to respond to that allegation than the allegation that you haven't sufficiently opened your mouth when you were asked to sing "God Save the Queen," which mm. was the kind of first line of attack from the establishment in general, and then it was that you don't bow enough when you go to the cenotaph, and now there's now there's a much more long running. Issue around anti Semitism, which obviously is an issue in general within society, but it doesn't seem clear to me that it's an issue specifically within the Labour Party.
1: Well, they are a little bit all over the place. Sorry, Tim. Yeah, you want no, to come I in. mean, there's an interesting broader question which you might want to reflect on about taking ourselves away from the specific case, which is you know, is it legitimate ever for uh, a member of parliament who's elected? to then want to leave any particular political party that he or she belongs to. And there could be the case to say, well, we ran on a kind of manifesto that we're not implementing, so I am going to step aside, or politics changes. I mean, here, one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, Brexit has changed British politics quite significantly. Um, The debates that we're having perhaps now are not necessarily ones that we were having a few years ago now that isn't necessary to condone or to justify what 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 the the tigs did kind of thing but i do think that what we have to be careful of is if we say that mps if they ever leave their parties would have to you would have to have a by election then we are really strengthening the power of the central power of of parties is that something we necessarily want to have especially in light of these kind of broader concerns that that, that both David and I, even though we come from slightly different ideological perspectives, agree on, which is a problem of that 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 um, uh, distance, that fraying those fraying bonds between parties uh, and citizens. And if it seems to be the party central central organisation which is imposing a view and no one who disagrees with it is allowed to dissent, is that good for? ...the health of democracy. Yeah.
0: Although, I mean, the empirical evidence such as it exists... ...seems to show that voters overwhelmingly support people... ...because of their party affiliation... ...not because of their individual qualities. So like some, some MPs claim that they have a personal vote... ...but like if you ask, say, Stephen Bush... ...of the New Statesman, uh, who talks about this periodically... Like in the maximum circumstances, personal votes amount to a like a figure in the low thousands, rarely sufficient to you know, rarely sufficient even to equal the margin of the person's majority, let alone the totality of their of their vote. So, you know, on the one hand. Yes, people might become disillusioned with politics if it seems like their personal their personal MP lacks individual characteristics and is simply being dictated to by the party leadership. On the other hand, if what they wanted to accomplish with their vote was giving a mandate to the party and then the person decides that they're going to treat that as though they've been given a mandate to do what they like, even in opposition to their party, like that could equally fray people's belief that the system works, couldn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose I would question the extent to which we can talk about the Labour Party under Corbyn as being this kind of centralising project. I mean, when we think, going back uh, over the last two or three years, there have been certain situations, probably the most obvious one has been over the uh, bombing of Libya, where you've actually had half of the front bench of the Labour Party voting against the line that the leader has actually taken. So there has actually been a large amount of internal pluralism, internal disagreement within the Labour Party. So I suppose from that position, I think, again, it seems that there's some sort of some kind of cynicism coming in terms of the allegation being made against the Labour Party leadership that this is about uh, sort of central centralising control, or or a kind of um, conspiracy to get rid of uh, to, conspiracy to get rid of labour MPs who don't fit to the, with the Corbyn mould, which has also been a kind of I suppose a kind of uh, question in the background as well with this the, the talks about mandatory reselection of MPs at every round of general election, which has also been a major point of contention between the kind of moderates and the corbynites i suppose
1: Mm. yeah i mean the interesting thing about um it's great that 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 david raises the point about um reselection because it actually points out that one of the concerns is is perhaps less about the nature of the central central organizations of the labor party and more about how the party is being run in each kind of constituency um, and the complaints, so you look at the, the pressures on these selections on certain MPs and the complaints that um, essentially the hard left is taking over a number of these constituencies and is forcing out moderate MPs. So the bigger concern probably for a number of these is about is about the fact that, I mean, this this goes back to the point that, that really, which I think David and I would agree on, which is that a sense that, the, the the right of the labor party feels that it's losing control over and it's it's losing its power within the party it's slipping to the far left who are using their their their, their strengths using their tools in order to try to influence policy um, but also critically trying to get their people represented and get rid of those people that they feel don't represent well that
0: Left Which was encapsulated in the the Luciana Berger case. Like yeah. part of her grievance against leadership was that uh, she has been on the sharp end of anti-Semitic attacks personally, and felt like they were uh, failing completely to. Take them seriously, secondly, she had been attacked within her constituency party though there, there were there were motions uh, initiated but not ultimately seen through to try and censure her, her for her disloyalty to to the leadership and therefore the kind of the issue of command and control both from top and bottom uh, in terms of loyalty to Jeremy Corbyn um, and the extent to which MPs can have their, their behaviour dictated or censured kind of got enmeshed with the question of the tone within the party and the appropriateness of the manner in which uh, people are conducting themselves when levelling criticisms at MPs. Because one could of course say, you know, I elected you to support the party's agenda, and the party's agenda is that set by the leader, which is Jeremy Corbyn. But you can say that a lot of different ways, and it seems like whatever way people have been saying it to, Luisi- uh, to Luciana Berger uh, has driven her to the point where she feels that this is beyond legitimate political conversation. This is persecution, harassment, and uh, you know, indeed of a kind inflected with, um, with, with anti-Semitism. So... Those those issues have uh, have overlapped in a pretty in a pretty toxic way. Yeah, yeah. they have
2: exactly. But don't, but that seems to me exactly a consequence of the way in which the whole anti semitism uh, discussion has been centered around a sort of implication Jeremy Corbyn probably is an anti semite, and if you if it's couched in that in those terms then clearly it's going to, it's going to invoke a, a pretty defensive position so that we have a kind of standoff on both sides where anti-Semitism, antisemitism becomes the kind of allegation from the right of the parliamentary party and dismissal becomes the, the kind of de- default position from the current leadership of the Labour Party because they view it in this kind of, as, a, as, a, as, as a reflection of this kind of ideological division as well. So a good example was um, uh, Jeremy Gilbert's got a good piece on, in general, dis- these discussions around what's going on within the Labour Party. And he, in there, has a link to an article uh, talking about Luciana Berger from 2005, where she was raising issues around anti-Semitism within the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, and how neither party were dealing with it, obviously under a different leadership. And so obviously the point that he's trying to make is that these- Obviously, there's ongoing issues of racism, anti-Semitism, in gen- uh, racism in general, and, and anti-Semitism in both parties. And obviously, there are also questions of degree. But to personalise it around the Corbyn leadership is can be really kind of negative and mm. and counter-constructive, which is what we're seeing, basically. I think.
1: But would you say? I mean, um, w- would you say though that, that Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been particularly good at? At countering those allegations, I mean, I think part of the problem um is that true there is an instrumentalization of this issue to some extent. I would agree with you, but also I don't think he has handled those criticisms particularly well, knowing and also you know as a politician, knowing how people will throw mud at you if you uh, if you allow them to he he has um failed at times to make a strong statement to be opposed to this um you know at times there's been kind of vacillation Uh, at times he seems to seems to be and i'm not suggesting he is but he gives the impression that there's a nod and a wink to say you know it's not that important um so i think part of the problem is just that if corbyn had kind of come out and said really strongly this is terrible, this is awful, it needs to be stamped out. I know that there's some anti-Semitism in the party. I know there are some people who ideologically close to me who may harbour these views, but this is absolutely uh, unacceptable. Um, That would have been much more effective. It feels as if he hasn't responded very strongly to those allegations. I think that's that's partly the problem for him. Maybe this is he's been badly advised, Um, but he could have been much more robust in his response.
0: Well, I mean, I can't get inside Jeremy Corbyn's head, but it kind of feels to me in the way in which he's reacted to it that like, his psychology seems to be that it seems so ridiculous to him that he would be accused of anti-Semitism given how clear he thinks it is that he is a kind of. Anti-racist across the board in in all forms. That it could only possibly be the case that someone who's levelling this accusation um, is is acting in bad faith and is motivated by by, by some other narrower political consideration. So like getting himself into the into the mindset to actually believe that people are saying this about him and. Earnestly and legitimately concerned about, and see him that way seems to be like proving extremely difficult. And also, it doesn't help that I suppose you know Jeremy Corbyn, within the left wing faction of the Labour Party, always was the foreign policy one. So he has, of all the issues he's concerned with, like one of the ones that's absolutely to the forefront, uh, to the front rank, is the Israel-Palestine issue. And so he, over decades of experience, um, feels that he's accustomed to the weaponization of charges of anti-Semitism to shut down what he sees as legitimate criticism. So when people want him to condemn anti-Semitism, he wants to do this kind of like analog to, you know, in the United States where people go black lives matter and someone goes all lives matter. And like that is not taken to be uh, like resolving the issue. It's seen as tacitly saying, no, they don't, because uh, I refuse to articulate the way you insist I do. He wants to say I condemn like racism and discrimination in all of its forms, which within his like in-universe discourse means, you know, I am not going to throw the Palestinians under the bus uh, by refusing to bring them into this conversation alongside discussions of, of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, but which translates to many of the Jewish listeners as, you know, I am essentially hand-waving at a very serious problem, uh, uh, but doing so in a, in a kind of vacillating coded speech way that others will fail to understand. Does that, does that seem like a fair characterization to you, David? It seems to me. I mean, the, one of the main sources I've been
2: relying on for this is the um, Jewish Voice for Labour, who have been coming out pretty solidly and consistently in support of Corbyn, talking about how Corbyn has consistently been an anti-racist campaigner and and essentially saying that the way in which the debate is going is really unhelpful because it's overblowing allegations of anti-Semitism that... that that according to the Labour Party's only investigations in which they seem happy to endorse don't reflect the degree of the problem. So one of, what I was just reading before, they were basically saying anti-Semitism exists to at around, they think, at around 2% to five of the two to 5% of the population, and the allegations of anti-Semitism that have then come to fruition in terms of be, being found to have been... Uh, to have been justified were about one hundredth of a percent and they uh, so their point they're trying to make obviously is that they're, that they're, there's there is a clear weaponization of anti-semitism in that way and that that is problematic but there are other
0: jew i mean you know if, if we wanted to reel off organized jewish criticism of jeremy corbyn's leadership and its behavior on this issue we could find like many Groups too, so I think that, yeah, exactly. that the response to that group's statements has always been, "Well, congratulations, Labour, you found one group uh, of representatives of the Jewish community who who absolutely back you, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't speak for most." Yeah, uh, no, but Jewish doesn't people. it
2: doesn't it highlight the ideological nature of the division? I mean, people like Michael Rosen as well. I don't know if you've been following him at all, but Michael Rosen, who's very consistently uh, campaigns around around his Holocaust awareness. His own family were killed in the Holocaust, and he annually visits sites in France where they were taken. And he's also at the very at the same time very explicitly saying that this anti-Semitism uh, allegations against Corbyn and the Labour Party are being done in a negative and ca- counterproductive way. So, I, and he's also on, on the left as well. So he, it seems to me that. That the the ideological nature of the divide over how the anti-Semitism debate is going has
0: been quite well exposed through this through this debate. Yeah, well, I guess I mean, they want to walk a line that does a bunch of different things simultaneously, like one of which is to say uh, anti-Semitism is in fact bad and is occurring to some extent and where it is occurring that's terrible and should be dealt with. Another uh, of which is to say that, you know, there are legitimate forms of criticism of the state of Israel or whatever it is that some of the people who are accused of anti-Semitism uh, would say they are doing that, you know, are legitimate and need to be separated out from that. And then also there is this uh, willful weaponization of the issue in bad faith by people, including many in the conservative party, whose track record on issues of race and and discrimination and respect for other religions is not good. Uh, but you know, but without saying that to immediately then mean and so we level down standards. So like whatever goes at a Tory party branch when talking about Muslims is suddenly fine now in labor when talking about Jews. And like walking that line is tricky. And it seems clear that as a political matter and as a party management matter, at least Jeremy Corbyn has not done a great job of, um, of walking it. Really? I don't know if it's clear. I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's how I interpret well, he's ju- well, Well, he's just lost several MPs and a large part of the rest of his party is... Yeah, uh, but, yeah but he, he was going
2: to, to, was it, going so. to leave, lose those MPs anyway, I suppose, is the point that, that I would make. I mean, they, they, were, they were ideological. There was, an, there was a clear ideological division... That, and the, that meant that there's a clear group of uh, people on the right wing and actually the majority of the parliamentary party who don't feel at home within Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. So mm. they were always going to... to it's, it was interesting as well to look through who, who the different people who left nominated in the leadership election in 2015 and six out of the eight who've left all backed Liz Kendall who was the, seen as, very clearly as the pro-Blair uh, new Labour candidate and who did pitifully badly in the election, as we know, securing, I think, about 5% of the vote. So already they were on the back foot, Mm -hmm. ideologically. Anne Coffey was one of the people who immediately, after the Brexit referendum, tabled the uh, vote of no confidence. And also ideologically, another interesting thing that I thought was telling was that, um, I don't know if you remember, but in the kind of interim period between losing the general election in 2015 and the election of Corbyn as the leader in the uh, the autumn of 2015, when Harriet Harman was the kind of caretaker leader of the Labour Party, and the welfare reform bill that was going through, being pushed through Mm -hmm. by the Conservative government, which was an attack on uh, welfare benefits, prompted the Labour Party to say, OK, well, we have to accept that that benefit cuts are necessary. And so the official line was to abstain. And every single one of the eight who left... Back to the uh, back to the Labour Party then's position of abstaining, and Corbyn was one of the only people uh, mm. who didn't.
0: So it just the ideological divisions all the way through are, are pretty apparent. I think. Yeah, I want I want to pivot back to 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 Brexit and then to the Conservative Party, if I. If I may, it's a bit of a grab bag. I think even in their launch, these independent MPs were a little bit all over the place in terms of exactly what their issue is. You know, uh, uh, Luciana Berger led on anti-Semitism. I think Mike Gapes has had some long-standing grievances around foreign policy. Chukra Munna has been big on the people's vote. But the thing, that, the thing that brings them, and especially the conservatives who've since joined them together more than anything else if you had to, the lowest common denominator is a kind of dissatisfaction with the direction of travel with regard to Brexit. Um, And this is kind of an example of, of, you know, I've banged the drum a few times on this podcast about how Brexit has broken our politics because the the way we're most comfortable with it is that you elect a government who are in favor of a thing. They do the thing and the opposition oppose the thing. And if you're opposed to it and it doesn't go well, then you vote for the opposition and you, you know, you, you get a new government. And that's that's what we're all most comfortable with. In these circumstances, you've got like a thing that no one thought was a great idea locked in as the, the necessary core policy. And then within the Labour Party context, you have um, you know a, a leader who officially doesn't think it's a good idea, but is dealing with a lot of MPs who have constituencies that voted mostly uh, to leave, uh, but Most of the voters who voted Labour voted to remain and most of the um, activist membership of the party really wants to remain. So uh, you've got a very awkward uh, set of calculations to bear in mind simultaneously. And lest we forget, in the the election manifesto on which Labour was returned to this parliament, they said they were going to respect the result of the referendum. So people who want to say now, you know, it's... Like nothing could be more outrageous than Jeremy Corbyn's refusal to declare that he wants to stop Brexit. Like need to account somehow for the fact that they they won the seats they currently have in Parliament by by saying they wouldn't. Um, so that's like a, a complicating thing. But and this is where I want to come to my question: the Conservative Party is, you know absolutely riven by division um, over Brexit. Uh, they have a leader that everyone seems to think is totally useless, and yet they do not appear to be tearing themselves asunder and indeed appear to be set potentially to, despite their uselessness, uh, reap great dividends from a split within Labour. Like why? Why is the Conservative Party somehow able to deal with incompetent leadership and internal division without self-sabotage in quite the same way? Or or is am I just uh, uh, you know, snapshotting the moment and the Conservatives are, are are well on the way to something equivalently bad, say, for example, if they elect Jacob Rees-Mogg or Boris Johnson as their Corbyn equivalent? Wh- why is Labour apparently worse at this stuff than the Conservatives?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing that's worth mentioning is of course three conservatives have broken away so they're okay it's not quite the same but um there was a a decision to go for uh what is a nuclear option to leave your party i mean this is we shouldn't underestimate the the decision in terms of someone leaving the party um it has real significant consequences but the second issue which is really important is the way that Theresa may managed to persuade her parliamentary party to support her In that leadership election not so long ago, was to make a promise that she was going to step down. So the thing is that at the moment, the Conservative Party is riven with um, disputes over what the solution, if there is one, to Brexit should be. Um, But they're also manning. They're they're also collecting their ammunition. They're also uh, organising their troops, ready for a leadership election, which will happen in the not too distant future. You know, to go back to your question, it may be just. The snapshot issue, rather than necessarily, yeah. So, so people within Labour who
0: don't think Jeremy Corbyn's up to it are like in despair because he's hegemonically powerful and unshiftable there. Whereas in the Conservative Party, things might be up for grabs in the near future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know if I want to use the word hegemonic about um, uh, uh, Corbyn, but but you know, this is a this is a man who has won two leadership elections. And he's going to be there for the foreseeable future we would expect, so the you know if we think of exit vo- voice loyalty kind of options, the exit option is a lot stronger, but exit vo- voice loyalty options for the conservative party well it's hang on, voice your discontent at the moment let 's see how things will pan out when the next leadership election comes in the Conservative Party, which will be um, just around the corner. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think it probably raises broader issues as well for um, why, not only why does the Labour Party seem to be struggling, in fact, I'd p- possibly argue that it's struggling less, but also why the social democratic parties and centre-left parties in general seem to be struggling over the last really 10 years. So I think all of this kind of discussion needs to also be couched in a kind of awareness of the key of the problem that social democratic parties and the moderate left have got, which is that they can't put together in the current socio-economic climate, a programme of a sort of reformist, redistributive-style policies that appear at the same time to be able to produce economic growth and at the same time to galvanise a sufficient uh, social constituency, which historically, obviously, would be something like the working class plus sections of the middle class. That that, that broad coalition that used to support social democratic parties in terms of their ability to be elected and to expand the welfare state and so on has been struggling really since the 1970s as we know that struggle since the 1970s led to this the emergence of this kind of new labor position which was much more pro-market much more much less willing to identify it in those kind of class terms but as we also know the consequence of that has been almost across the board that the social democratic parties have been uh, losing losing voters systematically, and much more, I think, than the centre-right parties. So if we compare something like the the pinnacle of the new Labour period or the third-way period being something like 2000 to now, the, on average, social democratic parties have lost, getting on for about 15% of the vote share. For the total vote share. And that's created major problems for them. And in most cases, it's led to uh, the move to them becoming completely insignificant parties. So they're completely insignificant now in France, Greece, mm-hmm. the Netherlands. They're really struggling to get above 20% of the vote share in Italy. They're looking like they're going to seriously struggle in Germany, having gone into the election promising not to do another coalition and then immediately afterwards. To forming a coalition, a grand coalition, mm-hmm. which I can't believe will play well in terms of voters afterwards. So we've got this kind of uh, gradual process where social democratic parties are becoming less and less feasible. And the only parties that seem to be doing reversing that trend on the left electorally are those that are taking this kind of more radical, more populist position, like in Spain, obviously, Syri- uh, or in Greece, obviously, Syriza, in Spain, Podemos, and now in the U.K., uh, the Labour Party with the Jeremy Corbyn, who's actually produced a 10% increase in the vote share yeah. for the Labour Party. So, so the
0: question then, I guess, is whether or not what we're going to see in the UK is, um, I believe the term of art is PASOKification, mm-hmm. uh, with reference to the Greek Social Democratic Party, in reverse. Mm-hmm. Where well, the problem in many countries has been that you have a traditional popular um, centre-left party, a new, breakaway, more radically populist left-wing party starts up, ...eats a bunch of their votes and this uh, Mm -hmm. combined with competition from the center and the Mm -hmm. right uh, drives them into a a tight electoral spot in which most have not excelled. The theory of the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party has been that Labour should inoculate itself against that by um, moving to the left Mm -hmm. to shore up its own constituency uh, for that policy platform... And then presume, I suppose, that it will hold on to the part of its support that's in the centre. And it seems as a matter of capturing the institutional Labour Party, that's been enormously successful. But it might be that the, the new breakaway thing that ends up splitting the vote and causing electoral failure... Would not be a left wing splinter, but uh because the the main body of the party has gone to the left would be a splinter in the middle or, or like the other part of the the part of the constituent the the part of the party elite that was considered to have held on to but then ruined the electoral prospects of left wing parties in the rest of Europe will be the breakaway part uh, in in the u k does that sound like a plausible like nightmare fever maybe. dream yeah maybe maybe but i mean the, i mean just i mean just to
2: I, mean, I suppose the, what I'm trying to say is that the re, because obviously we have this problem that social democratic parties can't find a winning position to adopt, and and nevertheless this kind of left populist one seems to be at least saving them from going to further decline. The obstacle, the main obstacle to that is obviously the establishment center left politicians who fear for their careers because they 're not attached to this kind of new image of what social democracy or center left politics is, and so that can either go in terms of a splinter like it does in, uh, or a new party version like it does in Spain and Greece or it goes in terms of infighting, which is what we 're seeing in the in the british case so and obviously because we have the two-party system, infighting becomes a much more likely outcome than it does to produce a, a brand new party. So I think that's probably answering the question of why is it seems such a problem for the centre-left parties, that it's not possible currently to have a progressive programme that works electorally in terms of how to manage capitalism and to win votes and to look feasible and viable all, all at the same time because of the nature of where we
0: are in terms of contemporary capitalism. So that's to finish the answer to the first question. Then the right. second one. We'll we ret- uh, we, we return <laughs> next week, listeners, for our podcast on contemporary capitalism, Good. which will flesh out some of the things I'm trying to get us there now. There.
2: But, on the second, but on the second thing, well, is this kind of, is a kind of centrist position going to attract voters from the left? But this is exactly what Macron stood for, and it's lasted for one electoral cycle, and now he seems incredibly unpopular. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that it really the centrist moderate position represents any kind of threat there is no moderate ag-
0: political position on the agenda that i can see now which, which also is viable as a as a political program I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. Uh, You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify. Three platforms now. And leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. Um, You can also recommend our show page on Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview, uh, where you can see links to the show and occasionally to other articles, etc. Please recommend us, share us. If you enjoyed listening to us, tell other people that you did. That's how people often find podcasts uh, we would really appreciate it personal favor we, we can i don't know uh give you a shout out or something if you make it clear to us that you've spread the good word about us online etc uh, i would certainly appreciate it uh, our participants today have been tim horton uh, where can people find you tim if they're looking to hear your opinions uh, uh, in other venues
1: well i equi- very occasionally tweet uh which is h-a-u-g-h-t-o-n tim my handle so uh, occasionally tweeting stuff that's horton tim uh in, uh, in tim, speech but indeed. but good good thinking ahead in terms of the spelling indeed some silent letters sneaking in there like ninjas absolutely that's the problem with the lancastrian name but yes so but occasionally but mostly to be honest with you i tend to tweet more about um central european politics when I tweet about politics,
0: okay. But if you know, if any left-wing members of the Labour Party want to excoriate you for your thoughts about these issues, they can find you there as well. They can Good. find me there. Good, uh, David Bailey. Uh, where can people find you? DJ Bailey two three one, and also we should say happy International Women's Day for tomorrow. Yes, indeed. Good luck to all involved in the many activities that no doubt are associated with that. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn161 on Facebook, and you can uh, see me in sunglasses in front of the Capitol building, uh, so easy to find and follow on there. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, uh, but I tweet probably less than Tim does, uh, basically, uh, usually links to this show and a small handful of other things because I much prefer Facebook. So please, if you want most of my feed, find me on Facebook, but I also am on Twitter. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and You've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks to the Pulsis Good Ideas Fund for their support, which we appreciate as always. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye.